Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by Dr. Bernd Walschlager. Before I tell you about the doctor's background, I first want to say that this is probably one of the most important podcasts that we've recorded, in our opinion, because we live in a very, very dark time of open anti-Semitism and Jew hatred. It's inconceivable how not long after the Holocaust, this is happening again. And I don't think people have really changed. I just think it's become more okay to be out in the open about it. And this is why I wanted to have this doctor on because he has a very unique story. As a teenager, Burned uncovered a very dark secret about his family. That his father was a decorated high-ranking Nazi who was very proud of his role as a tank commander in Hitler's army and played a part in the mass murder of innocent people, including children. This discovery, coupled with the murder of Jewish athletes by Palestinian terrorists at the Olympic Games in Munich, led Burns to study history and question everything he was taught. Burns tells us what compelled him to connect to and work for Holocaust survivors in Germany, convert to Judaism, make Aliyah, join the IDF, marry a Jewish woman, and eventually write a memoir, A German Life Against All Odds, Change is Possible, and how he explained his journey to his own children. As a successful doctor, proud American citizen, and Zionist, he dedicates his time to speaking about the dangers of anti-Semitism in the modern age and repenting for the sins of his father. His unlikely story is one of inspiration in a time when we really need to hear it. Without further ado, Dr. Bern Walschlager. Thank you very much, Dr. Bern, for joining the Judaism Demystified podcast. I heard your podcast, I heard your speech uh, somewhere online a little while ago, and it blew me away. And I just said, this is a kind of story that needs to be heard, especially in a time like today where there's a rising anti-Semitism and Nazism. Um, for those who are just listening to the doctor for the first time, this is an amazing person who was a child of a highly decorated, high-ranking Nazi, and he completely changed his destiny. And I'm not going to tell you any more. Without further ado, I'd love for the doctor to tell you his life story. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, man. Um, whenever I'm talking either online or live or a bit of in every form of a context, I have to take a deep breath and ask myself, why on earth do I sh spill my beans, so to say, my life in front of people that I don't know? Many of you nice, appear to be nice persons, but imagine I'm telling you and telling others my life, the intimate details of my life, how it happened and where I'm right now. For me, of course, history starts at the time and the place where I'm born in and born at. And I was born in Bamberg in 9th of May, 1958, 13 years and one day after the capitulation of Germany and grew up in a beautiful town that is kind of fairy tale. And I'm putting it in the front because when my son Tal asked me a simple question regarding the place where I was born, I didn't know how to answer it. I didn't know how to answer him at all. He asked me a simple question, Abba Mia Father was my grandfather. And I, 
you would say that's very simple to answer. You have a grandfather and a grandmother. Well, it was not that simple for me. Because on the one hand, my son went to Jewish school, so all my children, therefore I cannot ever give up working, pay back the debts, I'm just kidding. Uh, he fit in in the morning, going to, to synagogue. So a nice Jewish boy. And on the other hand, his father, yours truly, um, who was a Jew, was a Jew and Israeli and served as a soldier in a combat unit in the Israeli army. And with the shadow of my father looming over me, who was a national socialist, a Nazi, and a Jew hater par excellence. So how can I reconcile both worlds, the Jewish life and this darkness that I didn't want to touch with the six foot ball. It was like a dark energy, dark matter. I didn't want it to go there. So therefore, I didn't talk about it. But I had to talk about it. My son, at the, in the age of 12, 14, 15, asked me this question because I owned it to him. And what I told him approximately, as many facts came afterwards, I'm speaking now about my life for almost 20 years, 15 years. Uh, what I told him approximately what I'm going to tell you. Again, I was born in this beautiful, gorgeous city in which you have to, I'm not advocating for the German tourism industry, but it's a beautiful city, a thousand year old city, untouched by any wars, modeled after Rome, with a cathedral in the center of a hill, in the center of the town, built on a hill around churches that crowned each hill, seven hills within the city, a bastion of Catholicism, actually the only place where, where the Pope, Pope was buried outside Rome. So we were raised as children to appreciate history, untouched history, history dating back to a thousand years. But I noticed that there was something not kosher, not as I used the term, when I was seven, eight years old, a little munchkin in elementary school, we walked to the city. We were supposed to identify places, churches, kings, names, writing a history. I noticed there's something missing. There's something unique. Because there was something that happened in, in a recent history that was a war. And I knew in the war, people win and people lose. And when American soldiers, 10,000 of them, are stationed in the outskirts of the city of 75,000, we didn't win that war. So that's the only thing I knew. There was this history. Black hole, nobody talked about it. And when I asked my parents about that time, the war, and uh, where they're from, they didn't want to answer. For my parents, the standard answer was, we don't talk about it. We're only moving forward. We're not looking back. That's it. But I was uh, always exploring and nudging and asking. That's my typical of me at, at the age of 64. I'm still like that. Asking the question, why? For example, where who is my grandfather? Who are my grandparents? And nobody told me because they were gone in the war and it was not talked about. It It was silence, total silence. Eventually, my father and mother decided to tell me the story of their respective lives. And I heard from on the one hand from my father and on the other hand from my mother, two different stories. One of glory from my father's side and one of horror from my mother's side. My father, when he started talking and, and telling me his life story, he never stopped him, but like a record, he put the record on and on and on. Every Sunday afternoon when we walked in the forest, he taught me how to handle a rifle, how to shoot at a fish. I had a very close relationship with him. He told me this story that he was the youngest tank commander, elite tank commander, in a German unit under the command of Guderian, the father of the German Blitzkrieg, General Guderian. And my father was his disciple. And in every war, literally every war that the open German in that time, 1st of September 1939, the invasion of Poland, my father's tanks were the first to roll in, blitzkrieg, moving forward fast. In the, in, the, in the summer of 1940, the attack 
on Belgium, Holland, and France, my father's tanks were the first to roll in. Then, of course, the fatal attack on the former Soviet Union in the summer of 1941, where my father's tanks again not only rolled in, they rolled to the furthest, close to the edges of Moscow, and conquered a strategically located city called Orel. And for that accomplishment, he was awarded the Knight's Cross by a man whom he still adoringly referred to as his Führer, Adolf Hitler. Now, you have to take in consideration, I was eight years old, I never heard the term Führer, I never heard the term Hitler, I just knew my father was a war hero. And the message that he was a war hero was reinforced by his old war buddies who came to visit our house at least once a year to celebrate the good old times, celebrate the times of the war, singing songs about the war, the horse vessel lead. I mean, this was hardcore Nazis. And I remember one of them who looked at me and said, look, Bern, your father's a hero. Everybody admires him. You should be proud of him. So my father with a knight's cross around his neck, for me, he was the hero. On the other hand, my mother told me a completely different story, though. She was an ethnic German, born and raised in Czechoslovakia, where for the last 300, 400 years, ethnic Germans settled on the border region between Czechoslovakia and, uh, and Germany. And beautiful villa, my grandfather, my maternal grandfather was a wealthy merchant. He could afford to build a beautiful villa, could afford to have all the trappings of the lifestyle. My mother was the only child. You know, the San Bernard told me these stories about the San Bernard, the San Bernard was sitting here, um, about the parrot that she had, everything lost. Just rescued a picture of a house with a gun in her hand that my father gave her, and she fled in 1945 towards the border. My grandparents, maternal grandparents, died as a, as a result of, the, of this horrendous flight. Thousands and hundreds of thousands of Russians in pursuit of Germans to kill them. And my mother survived. So glory and horror. But there was something else that bothered, that, that vexed me because it was staring me in my eyes every morning. There was, in our house, we lived in a massive two-story building, patrician-style building in Bamberg. It's still standing there, so renovated, but the impressiveness of this building, you can still fathom when you go there. And when you walk, we were in the ground floor and in the, in the, up, in the upper floor, in, this, in the first, second floor, was a lady living that my mother asked me to refer to her as the Countess. Gräfin in German, the Countess. Never talking to her unless spoken to her. Not because she didn't like her, but she, it was normal not to be talking directly to a noble person. I didn't know what that meant, but that's what my mother wanted me to do. And in the hallway, right next to the stairway that leading upstairs to the Countess's apartment, was a larger-than-life portrait of a man mounting at the wall in uniform, like my father, whose pictures I saw at home, the knight's cross around his neck, the officer's insignia on the shoulder, he was a colonel, and the knight's and the officer's cap on his on his head. And when I asked my father who this man was, my father looked at me and said, do not ask me this question anymore. He was a traitor, ein Verräter. And I asked myself, how can it be a man who looked like my father? at least in the picture, and my father looked like him, at least in the photographs that I had. How can two men who looked alike be bad and one can be good? Simple question of a child. Until I found out that the man who was depicted on this painting was no other than a painting of Klaus Count von Stauffenberg, the German colonel who was leading the assassination attempt on Adolf Hitler on the 20th of July, 1944, which unfortunately failed. He was executed the same night. And his widow, Nina von Stauffenberg, the Countess lived upstairs. Now, I never made the connection because I was young, eight, nine, eight, nine years, but there was something unique that my father didn't like him and we, I shouldn't talk to her. There's something weird going on, so simplified. 
And every su my Sunday when my parents, we had lunch and then everybody went schlufen for two, for two or three hours. And, and I never went to, to sleep. I was wanted to explore. And I heard the, the Countess's grandchildren sneaking up there, playing, and I sneaked up there, up there too. And I entered an apartment you know, several times in this apartment the last time, and I was about 22. And the walls were covered wall to wall, no space left with pictures of that man smiling and laughing and the contents. Pictures of beauty, pictures of tranquility, pictures of happiness. And I asked myself, not in the intellectual death and spirit yet, how can it be that my father doesn't like it? Very simple. And I was about 12, 13, about 13, 12, 13. We started to talk in school about that time that we normally know, never talked about, the time between 1933 and 1945. There was suddenly, there was an approach. And what we learned in school, maybe not in every school, but in our school at least, that Adolf Hitler rose to power on January the 30th, 1933. He was appointed by the then President Hindenburg, Marshal Hindenburg, and the Prime Minister Papen. And within three months, he turned Germany from a fledgling democracy, the Weimar Republic, to a dictatorship. In March of 1933, the first, uh, first concentration camp was opened. There was Dachau, not for Jews, but for those who were not wanting to live or criticize the country, i.e. socialists, communists, homosexuals, and so on. Everybody was a deviant. So in the same month, point, sorry, until this point, they, they, um, the Jews were not mentioned in your school. It was just no, not the only mentioning of Jews was the following: Jews killed Jesus. That we would learn in, in in Sunday school from a priest. Now I had no reference, not that I'm innocent, but I had no reference to Jews because I just listened to what the the pastor said. So was there? Was it? Sorry, just one more thing no, about, about um. Hitler was he kind of painted in a neutral light? Yes, um, it, it was. He was painted as it evolved, first in a neutral light that he was the elected chancellor, and he was the elected and then appointed chancellor of Germany. March of nineteen thirty-three, the Reichstag, the parliament was was burning. Most likely a ruse developed by by conducted by Hitler and his uh, conman in order to show people we need to have a stronger government because look what happened. And uh, Germany, as our teachers told us, uh, was responsible for the Second World War, started in 1939, 50 million, 100 million people died, mostly Russians and others. And a, also there were 6 million Jews, collateral damage of war, nothing mentioned specifically, nothing about the Holocaust, it was put on the part of, of losses. And then on the 8th of May, 1945, Germany surrendered. Hitler committed suicide in April, two weeks before. And uh, Hoff and Puff, the, the Nazis disappeared like a bunch of Huns invading Germany and then disappeared, the barbarians. Well, that was, of course, horseman arm. That was not the true story. And the true story came up out of because of a necessity, the necessity to deal with history and the necessity to deal with an event in recent history that changed the entire equation and it changed my life. The Olympics in Germany, Munich, 1972. That was the first time that Germany, as West Germany, could shine and as not only as a state on the border of the Cold War, but also defending 
democracy, rebuilding democracy, rebuilding a country that is worthwhile to be called a, de a democratic republic. And at that time, in 1969 specifically, a prime minister, was a politician was elected to, to be the chancellor of Germany, who was a complete break to the with the past, because he was not a Nazi, he was a socialist, Willy Brandt, and he escaped Germany in 1933, he escaped to Norway, with the occupation of Norway, he escaped to Sweden, returned to Germany to reclaim his citizenship, and built a party to now called Social Democratic Party, to a powerhouse that rose to power in 1969. And he was the first German politician, untinged, un, not tarnished by the by the crimes of the Nazis, who traveled to Poland in a December day in 1970, and in front of the Warsaw Ghetto Memorial, he sank on his knees, bowed his head, and asked for forgiveness for what Germany did. That was an unheard event. I know because it was unheard because on the front page of our newspaper, the picture of the chancellor kneeling in front of the memorial. And my father read newspaper every morning. He wanted me to read and understand the world. He asked me a question. But that morning, he slammed the breakfast, newspaper on the breakfast table, pointing on the chancellor, kneeling in, and said, Schau mal hier, Bernd, wieder ein Verräter. Look, Bernd, again a traitor. And I was confused. I said, how can it be that my father reacts so cholerically, so crazy? Because if somebody kneels in front of a memorial, like I kneeled in front of a, in, a, in church, for something positive something very moral and very uh, moral man and ethical man. Why my father is so mad? And this chancellor with a tremendous moral standing in the Western world opened Germany to the Olympics in 1972. And in August 1972, the Olympics in Munich started. And this was not only for, for, the, for those who were connoisseurs of Olympic Games, but for Germany, extremely important to demonstrate to the world that they're different. And my parents invited for the opening ceremony friends over. I had to call most of, the, of the, our friends as uncle and aunt, even though I knew that they were not my uncle and aunt, because I didn't have a family, or at least my father didn't want to tell me that there's a family. And they were coming and was fine food, wine, beer, and of course, our first TV, black and white though. And all the teams parading to the stadium and carrying their respective flags, hooray, hello, clapping. And then suddenly, a team paraded into the stadium carrying a flag with a star inside, the Israeli team. And in that moment, ice cold. Nobody talked. Everybody looked away as if a ghost appeared on the screen. It didn't happen. And I knew it was the do not ask the question moment. And I asked myself, that's weird. That's just another team. Again, a child trying to make a connection. Unfortunately, 10 days later, the same team that's proudly paraded into the stadium was brutally attacked by a group of Palestinian terrorists from the Popular Front of the Liberation of Palestine, supported by the PLO and supported, we know that now, by the East German Secret Service, Stasi, Staatssicherheitsdienst, well, call it the Mossad of, the, of, the, of East Germany. And the terrorists were equipped with everything that they needed, most likely to East Berlin. And uh, they climbed the defense to the attack the Israelis in the Olympic Village, who were butchered, brutally butchered, and the remainder were taken hostage and all were beaten to death. And the Olympics came to a halt on behest of the German government. The German government wanted to know that, uh, that they had to stop the Olympics. They had no jurisdiction, but they begged the Olympic Committee to stop the Olympics, which was done after one day. And personally, the Minister of Internal Interior and the Foreign Minister negotiated face-to-face -face with Carlos, the terrorist leader, 
asking the uh, Issa, I'm sorry, Issa, the terrorist leader, asked him and begged him to release the hostages in lieu of cabinet members of the German government. Issa de denied that. He wanted to know, he wanted to be flown out by helicopter from the Olympic Village to an outside military airport. The Germans should provide a Boeing 747 of the German Air Force to be flown out to an Arab country of their choice. And then Israel should release 260, 280 prisoners in a big, big fanfare, most likely in, taking place in Cairo or in Libya, to release them and demonstrate that this is that the terrorists have won. Well, I remember every beat, every second, every minute of what happened then. Helicopters landed behind the closed gates of the of the Olympic Village. We could only see on the cameras. We could only see that two groups uh, were, were disseminated and separated in two helicopters. The helicopters flew towards the military airport, followed by a third helicopter of the German army, who actually had wanted to shoot it down in case something goes wrong, and landed behind the closed gates of the military airport of Fürstenfeldbruck, not far away from Dachau, and then all hell broke loose. Fire, fight, night sky lit by, lit by explosions, and for about two hours, and then deafening silence. What happened was literally put together in one sentence, by an American journalist who turned towards the camera and looked in the camera and said, they're all gone. What happened that the, the Arab terrorists, um, when they were felt surrounded and had to, and wanted to board the flight, the 707, it was empty. There were no pilots, there was no nothing. They knew it's a trap. And they started to fire the German police, which had only rifles, like gun toy rifles, we call them. The, Mossad, uh, head of the Mossad, Svia Samir, was on the ground with Mossad teams begging the Germans, do not open fire. These are skilled terrorists. These are skilled operators. These are, these are soldiers of fortune. So let us do it. The Germans didn't want to do it. And what happened? When Isa found himself surrounded through a hand grenade in one helicopter, which exploded, all the Israelis alive, burnt in a fireball. And the other helicopter is sprayed with machine gun fire, and everybody died. And the next morning, a picture in a newspaper all over Germany, front page, including the ones that my father read. A picture of two helicopters on the tarmac, one burned out with the charred remains of the Israeli inside, the other with the bodies of the Israelis slumped over the seat, barely covered with white linen. In a big headline, Jews killed in Germany again. Now, I'm no, I speak German pretty fluently. I also spoke it pretty fluently then. What do I mean again? Murdered? Doesn't make any sense. What do you mean? This was an accident. And I asked my father what happened. And my father was livid. Stormer here was Stevenson's unto him. Look what they, the Jews, do to us. Whenever they are here, they're causing trouble. And we have to deal with the trouble. The victims as the perpetrators and the perpetrators as the victims. And um, in school, after this horrendous event, our teachers felt compelled to talk for an entire week about this. Some of them cried. Some of them couldn't finish their sentences. Of course, they told us on the bottom of the heart what happened in the second during the Second World War. What happened to the Jews? There was no collateral damage. It was murder. So I'm curious, actually, regarding the children. These are presumably these teachers also are children of Nazis. A lot of them, and some, some and and you know, when you lose a war, it's not like people just automatically change their minds, but they just have to kind of you know, move on with life, but all of their true inner feelings remain, uh, most likely, unless they kind of snap out of it. But I'm always curious, you know, in this story, because you're telling me that 
that you know the the German version of Mossad was behind helping them. There's still this this sense of hatred towards Jews in Germany that that remains. No, actually not. What was it was the I think the most horrendous event that happened in, in Munich was was interpreted by the Germans and was seen by the Germans as being powerless over what happened around them. My, the majority. My okay. father belonged to those who were just could not make, could not put this A, B, A and B together. Uh, my father was unre unrepented. Uh, he didn't want it to change, he, he, but he was forced to talk about it. And the way he talked about this is to denigrate the victims. And um, that was, I, I couldn't understand it. Why is in this horrendous event that affected our entire nation, it was everybody was, was demonstrating on the street where people denouncing the events of, of, uh, of München, of Munich. And my father didn't want to talk about it. And I asked myself, if my father not talk about it, something else happened that he didn't want to tell me. And I started to read everything I could get my hands on in French and German and in Hebrew and in, in Spanish, in any languages that I could, could understand at least basic. I read every book that I could find. And the more I read, I had the sinking feeling that the reason that my father didn't talk about that time and that the reason that his deeds were glorified is that he has to hide something. And I needed to know because I admired my father. I loved my father. He was the only a man who wanted to guide me in life, who, who helped me to achieve and to learn and to think logically. My father cannot be that one of those. And I asked him questions, which of course he wouldn't answer. So I had to find the right moment and the right time in the following years to get the information out of him. And my father was a raging alcoholic. As a child of a raging alcoholic, you know that there's this twilight zone moment when they're not, when he's not drunk yet, or when he's too drunk in this twilight zone, I call it the shaker zone, where you could literally manipulate him and get money out of him. And that was the manipulative behavior that I learned as a child of, uh, of an alcoholic, without knowing the the logic behind. But I succeeded. And I asked him questions over the course of time that started out with phase one, I call it. Father, um, in school we learned about the Holocaust. Uh, what can you tell me about it? Holocaust, it's a lie. Von den Juden davon, the international Juden, international, Jew, international Jews, the Jews that, that are cosmopolitans and manipulating the power all over the world. We didn't do anything. This has never happened. And if something happened, it was not us, the Wehrmacht. It was all the SS. Well, that was a lie. I knew that really at that time. But 20 years after his death, I found the truth just to verify that it was a big lie. Found a picture uh, when the archives opened up after the fall of the wall in the end of the Cold War. A military historian was contacted uh, by mail. There was no internet yet. He guided me in finding material about my father. And he found it. I got a picture of my father sitting next to Heinrich Himmler. Heinrich Himmler was the head of the SS. My father was a ma major in the in the tank forces. When, when Wehrmacht officers and the head of the SS men was never about tank tactics. It was about securing kill zones. The Wehrmacht surrounded kill zones. Then I found a, a letter was found on my behest, which uh, is very difficult still nowadays to think about it. It was a letter signed by my father, a transfer of about 600 or 700 Russian prisoners of war to a place in Poland called Auschwitz for neutralization. It's, I will not take away the suffering of Jews from Auschwitz, but many hundred thousand were not Jews including Russians who were worked to death or gassed, Russian prisoners of war. 
So my father lied to me through and through. He was dead already, but I knew this, this lie was born in that day. Then the second phase of questions and answers was, Father, you know, um, how can it be that so many children were killed by people like you? He looked at me and said, very seriously, he said, no, we didn't kill them. They were killing, they were responsible for the death because there's something called the Geneva Convention. If you are a combatant with a gun in your hand, you can be killed. We don't have to, the rules of war don't apply. I ask him rhetorically, you tell me that 1.1, 1 .1, 1.2 million children lined up in front of the horror, the burning, the gas chambers and the burning of the bodies and saw that and everybody knew what happened and, and the ashes rained down like snow and people that lived near Auschwitz. How can you tell me, how can you justify the killing of 1.2 million children, which had absolutely nothing to do with you, the mightiest army in the world? He stopped talking. And then one day he was drunk. But he had intent. It was a conflict over and over. It was a friction. My mother cried always, and we were yelling at each other. She was in between. But it was the last question I'd ask him. And I said, "Can you tell me something about the Holocaust? Did you lie through it? I know what it was." And I said, "The Holocaust never happened, and it's the fault of the Jews. We never did anything. They messed it all up. And by the way, the world should be grateful for what we did because we got rid of the lichluch, the schmutz, the dreck." the dirt, the litter. The world should give us an, a price that we dealt with the Jews once and for all. They didn't let us finish it. But that was the point where the straw broke the camel's back. I turned away from my father. I did not want to have any interest in communicating anymore. I was obsessed with the burning desire to know why the Jews? Who are the Jews? Because I never met a Jew. I mean, again, my mother was an Orthodox Catholic, sent me to Catholic kindergarten, Catholic school, elementary school, I was an altar boy, she wanted me to become a priest, obviously that didn't work out, uh, didn't become one, but uh, how, how can it be that Jews were selected to be different, to be killed just because we're different? And I asked one of my teachers, a former Jesuit priest, who was a teacher in ethic and religion, his name was Jupp, actually a very common name, like Smith, and uh, he said, Bernd, you know, my parents never answered the question because my father didn't return from the war. I, you need what I learned. You need to make amends to those who they were harmed or killed. I said, "How can I make amends? I don't know Jews." I said, "Well, the Catholic Church organizing once a year a trip of Israelis, Jews and Arabs alike, to Germany, and from Neve Shalom, a peace initiative in, in, in Israel, and they're learning from each other. And we always invite a, a German participant to that too, and I was a German participant." And for the first time in the age of 19, 18, I met Jews. I mean, it was a big, big deal. Well, I didn't imagine that in hooks, hook nose and, and were dressed in a, in a black uh, a stramel and a black hat. But, but people like you and me, sure, they were, we were the same generation. You exchange information, who music you like, whose band you like, what food you like. And I like these really girls a lot. I have, to clear, I have to clearly say that I was not only driven by spiritual means and needs, but uh, one of these really girls who told me, look, Tachelis, if you like me, you come to visit me, right? I mean, that Israeli girls are straightforward. Yeah. And <laughs> come right to the point. And I said, of course I will do that. But it was just one minor problem. I needed a passport, nor did I have money. And when she left, I was heartbroken. And within two months, I got my passport together, worked in the summer, got some money. 
And I traveled in a very adventurous way to Israel, which I do not recommend anybody to do it, unless you have time to spare in licking your wounds. Um, I hitchhiked to Munich. From Munich, I took a train across the Alps to Ancona, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a port city in Italy, from there by ferry uh, to Piraeus. It was not a cruise ship, it was sleeping on deck. In Piraeus, we reprovisioned. I sent a telex for it. It was before Google, Schmuggle, and all that stuff. And I sent a telex for it that I would arrive in Latin that day in Haifa. And I remember the first time I ever arrived in Israel, I did this trip again years later. The mountains, the Carmel Mountains, almost the closer we came to the coast, almost emerged from the from this ocean, from the Mediterranean Sea. A beautiful morning. Pious Jews were standing on top of the uh, boat, laying tefillin and praying. And uh, it was a mystic moment. I said, this is something unique. And I had immediately was overcome by my by the feeling and the, and the question, what if somebody finds out that my name is Wolfschläger and my father did something? To that family. I mean, it was a justifiable fear. But I then saw her at the customs area, and all doubts and fears wiped away. She embraced me, said, Let's go to my parents, and with a community taxi up to the hill, the area called Neve Shanan, which was a working class settlement at that time. And her parents were waiting outside, this tiny little house, they were waiting outside the house, welcoming, welcoming me like the long lost son. My father took my bag, my, my rucksack, and mother took the bag walked into the house and chit-chatting with me. I had no idea what they were talking about because it was Yiddish. Sitting me down, they gave, op opened one room for them and they all lived in another room. It was a two-room house, not two bedrooms, two-room house, very tiny, working-class environment. And they dished out for dinner everything that I probably never ate, but a true homeless falafel trainer, and chit-chatting and trying to communicate with me. And I didn't understand. And then her father turned to me Looked me in my eyes. He was a pretty strong man, a foreman uh, in the port of Haifa. He looked at me and said, I can speak German. I really don't want to anymore, but can you understand me better if I would speak to you in German? He said, sure. How did you learn German? Naive that I was. He looked me in my eyes and pointed a number tattooed on his forearm and said, Ich war in den Lagern. Not in a camp, in camps, plural. I was in the Ich war in den Lagern, I was in the camps. And I survived with the death march from Auschwitz. I survived. I stayed two, two to three years in, in Germany in a displaced person camp. And I had to learn that not all Germans were monsters, even after the war. And uh, he immigrated to Israel, married, and founded a family. But he looked at me and said, do they teach you everything what you need to know? And I was sitting there for the first time in a Jewish family in the house of a Holocaust survivor in Israel, wanted to sink in the ground, disappear. So don't be afraid. I just wanted to under, make you understand what, what really happened. And a few days later, he took off from work and traveled with me to Yad Vashem. It was a Holocaust memorial in Yerushalayim. And he took me by his hand and walked slowly to the old exhibit at the time, slowly and pointed out every single piece of the exhibit. When we finished about an hour and a half later, I broke down. I could not understand how these people in a positive sense who rebuild their life, rebuild their families, rebuild an old nation anew, how can they not hate? I'm a representative of, of the people that killed them. My father was such a murderer. How can they not hate me? There must be something unique, something different. And I wanted to know what. And when I returned to Germany, I decided to approach the Jewish community and learn more about them. And the problem was in Germany, I had a population of 60 to 70 million in West Germany at that time. 
There were only about 25,000 optimistically guessed 25,000 Jews left. And they were hermetically sealed off literally in communities like in Berlin, Munich, and Frankfurt. Bamberg was kind of an off because there were only about, about 60 to 80 Jews left. And I found a Jewish community in Bamberg seeking it out. The entrance was from the was in the, the building was in the center of Bamberg, but the entrance was to the courtyard. And there was a sign plated in engraved sign on the copper, the copper plate in written Israelitische Kultusgemeinde, not even Jewish community, Israelite cultural community. And I knocked at the door several times, an old man, definitely only about five foot four, looked at me, opened the door reluctantly, just and looked at me, was Wilster, what was Wilster, what do you want? And I must have chatted or bubbled, bubbled, or whatever. He felt comfortable. To let me in because he thought it's an interesting young man let me let him in and we walked to this dark corridor with the light in the corner red light and the walls covered literally inch by inch with plates of names names engraved on each plate i said what is that so this is the tamit the eternal light and this here are the names of all those bamberg jews who never returned from Theresienstadt, auschwitz stutthof treblinka maidanik by 1,200. That was my beginning of understanding what horrendous things happened. It showed me the community was like a Shibalech, the Babima. It was a little, definitely for a minion, a minion had to squeeze in. And he went to his office. It was a summer day, very hot, curtain closed, windows closed, no air condition, no fan. And he had this, he was very pale and he had a short sleeved white shirt on and the number tattooed on his forearm. And I looked, I stared, even today I have a tough time to take my to take my eyes open and see something like that. He looked at me and said, Das, first of all, my name is Itzhak Rosenberg. I'm the chair of the Jewish community. What's left? Das is Auschwitz. What do you want? Half his nails. I said, I want to learn. Well, take a few books and, uh, and learn. You're, you're German, you bring it back. And I read all the books that I, could make, could, that I could be read. But I want to know how I can help. What do you mean help? I want to learn how I can help you. Said young man, you're unusual, but there's there's never a free lunch. If you want me to teach you about Judaism, which you just expressed, and you and you, and you think it's free, come again. You have to be our Shabbos guy, and I will tell you what what to do. Shabbos guy, I had no idea what a Shabbos guy meant, but it was a good ticket into the community. He would teach me for free, and uh, I would be a Shabbos Shabbos. I had no idea, and he showed me how to make. You know what a Shabbos guy is? To make a show me a Shabbat and to make coffee food at the warm-up and then he told me look when you are here in the community as a Shabbos guy you better squeeze yourself in the corner because the Altecakers that's what he said the Altecakers will not like you and you're right when he came in I have learned that so he said when should I come he said Friday at six o'clock I was there at six o'clock he came at eight he looked at me was master uh, he told me at six o'clock six o'clock seven o'clock it was a German you have to think differently, reprogram. And so I learned that they don't take it to take it to exactly. And um, showed me what to do and said, wait in the corner, don't say anything. And indeed, every member of the community came. Was do what you have to do, you help me. So I come every Friday, every Saturday, week by week, month to month, year by year, holiday by holiday, for five years. Showed up in the community without break. And the more I came close to the community of choice, the more I separate myself from the community of origin, my family. There were several blow-ups that would take too much of your time, but one blow-up that really blew everything up 
was when Christmas fell on a Friday night. And for my mother, as an Orthodox Catholic, you had I could literally write the das, das, the, the script what happened. We at that time we, we were going to in the evening going to the I said mosque to the cathedral after the Christmas mass we came back ate traditional food lentil soup and carp then we were waiting for my father ringing the bell so we could my mother could open these big oak doors that lead into this huge living room that we had my father standing next to the Christmas tree with real candles with his finest dark suit and the knight's cross around his neck singing festive Christmas hymns. Now, I was not there. I came on Saturday after Shabbos, so Saturday in evening after sunset. And my father was yelling, my mother was crying. I said, look what you did to your mother. Why didn't you show up? I said, let, tell me, tell you one thing. Let's get this Greek tragedy out of the way. I will not sit with you on the same table with blood on your hand and this damned cross around your neck that you think is, is, is something that you earned. There's blood on that blood of blood stain. You were a murderer like all the other murderers. I hate you. That was an emotional outburst. My father looked at me, Raus, get out. It was a tiny little problem, Kessif. No money. But even though I was in the second to last year of medical school, I had a scholarship, I could make it, but there was an extra expense that I didn't have to work for, though I had to start working. And I never asked in the community for money, nor did I get for money. And Itzak must have noticed something. He was like my substitute father. He must have noticed something and didn't want to tell him what happened. And he must have told people, because suddenly, after five years of my task in the community, a man approached me, his name was Aaron, who never talked to me. And uh, Aaron looked at me, he was about 5'2", five, 5'3", five, and looked at me and said, Du bist der Goy. Yes, Aaron. And du bist du in the shoe and deine Jacke sind schmutzig. Your shoes and the jacket are dirty. Kauf den alle Sachen, buy new stuff and give me 100 mark. So first he insulted me, then he gave me 100 mark. I went to Itzhak on Saturday afternoon, we were in went into his office and said, look, Aaron just gave me a hundred mark. Aaron gave me a hundred mark, this stingy guy gave you a hundred mark. Didn't you ask for 200? Why should I ask for 200? Because you that's what you do among Jews, you go up. And I was looking confused. I said, Come, he had this sick humor, but wonderful humor. And he looked at me and said, look, sit down, Brent. Let me explain you something. We are not normal people, not because God chose us to be not normal, but because he suffered so much. I barely got my life together, married a non-Jewish woman, and she converted, and we had a beautiful family. No children, but a beautiful family. She helped me to reconstruct his emotional jacket, he called Aaron, I just found out from the Red Cross that he was in Auschwitz. Nothing else. Validated he was in Auschwitz. Whole family disappeared. He was the only survivor. That was another thing to the story because Aaron started to talk with me every Friday, every Saturday, sensing that he was probably getting old and will die without telling the truth. I was a member of the Sonderkommander in Auschwitz. I don't know if you know what that is. I spare you the details. Sonderkommander was a group of Jews who guided other Jews through their doors and entrance of the chamber, gave them a number, a plastic card with a number, and said, take your clothes off, this is the number that you remember, that's yours. And keep the number and your other number in the hand to identify it. And they closed the door, and the Nazis and the, the murderers opened the event and threw Cyclone B in there. And uh, he told me it didn't end, it didn't end after two minutes. Sometimes it were 10, 15 minutes. Some even survived, but died. And they had the Sonic Commander to open the doors with the gas mask on, pull out the bodies, 
took the teeth, gold teeth out, burned the bodies, crushed the bones, and scattered on the killing field of Auschwitz, Treblinka, Splutov. And um, he cried. And actually, the this, this, this story that he told me, I know now why he told me the story, because he knew he was dying, he had cancer. And uh, I got a call about six or seven months later in the university, I immediately should call back. Of course, there was no cell phone, I left a message, call back, Itzhak, and said, Itzhak will happen, no, you never know, don't call. Come here, band, Aranda, come on, come back home. It was about a one hour train ride, I went back home, home for me, the community. So we have to, the Orthodox community, as you know, we have to bury Aaron, we have to clean his body tonight, then we have to bury him tomorrow morning. And we did that in, in the nighttime. He said, you, you're a medical student, you know how to clean, you have no problem with the body. I said, yeah. And uh, in the morning, we had to bury him in the casket. It was according to German law. We had an open casket, I said goodbye. And then Aaron and Itza came to me and gave me a book. You say the Kaddish. I knew the Kaddish by heart. I said, I cannot say the Kaddish. I mean, I'm not a Jew. I said, you're one of us and you were a threat. And I said the Kaddish. And that was crossing the line. I mean, I crossed the line emotionally, emotionally, spiritually. I crossed the line. I said, oh, and a few days later, I said to, to Ritzak, I want to I want to convert. I don't, that's my home. I, that's my family. Ritzak looked at me. I showed you that. You looked at it. This is Auschwitz. We only suffer Jews. We have nothing good in the world to expect. Be a righteous, be a righteous man. You're get Zedek. You don't have to become a Jew. But I want to become a Jew. Said, well, I feared that this moment will come. I put some money aside to travel to Frankfurt to the rabbi there, and you don't come back. You pay for the hotel, the food, and everything in the train, but don't come back until the rabbi cleared up your head. Well, he, I, the rabbi tried to clear up my head, and uh, then he uh, and he said, I will never convert you, but we, we have lessons together, and you learn about Judaism. So I did that for two years, and every time I finished the lesson, I said, I want to become a Jew. Until he gave up in about March 1986, as a burned, I refer a case to the rabbinical court. I'm one member of the rabbinical court. I don't guarantee that your case will be successfully dealt with, but you have to do, unfortunately, two steps already before, in anticipation that you might get converted. One is a little plastic surgery. I don't want to talk about it. Um, the only moral, the only moral that you can save was in Basel, and I traveled to Basel. There was a moral in Munich, but he was a drunk, so. With the shaky hands, you don't don't take that risk. And um, true story. And then three months, four months later, I had to travel to Metz in France to emerge, immerse myself in an Orthodox liquid by a Haredi community. I went back to with the Mismachim and the papers together. I went back to Germany and prepared myself for the hearing, which was in December 1986. And I remember it was like a court hearing. The Shoftim was sitting on, a, on, a, on an elevated stage. I was standing, looking, sitting in the chair, looking up to them. They had dark coats on the, the head of the, the uh, shofet. And uh, the chief rabbi looked at my papers and said, look, you have a stellar career. You know everything, a lot of character witnesses, but that all means nothing to me. I want to know why a German, the son of a Nazi, wants to become a Jew. Tell me your story. And I told him the story. And they retreated for Dion for a session, came back, I had to stand up. I was very intimidating. And the rabbi, chief rabbi wrote up the Theodatio, first read in Hebrew, then in German. But do you understand what that means before we close the session? Yeah, you're a Jew now. 
but do you thought about your name? Your name is Ben Abraham. You cannot change it. But your first name is no, no. Well, your first name is what? Bernd. Do you know what Bernd means? The bear slayer. Doobie. From now on, your name is Dorf Ben Abraham. And I was overwhelmed. It was an overwhelming feeling. And I immediately applied for the Jewish agency for an, for an, for an immigration. I got the, the American, the Israeli embassy in Bonn. I got the immigrant visa. And for according to the law of return, Chokashut. And um, one month later, I took a one-way ticket from Frankfurt to Tel Aviv to disappear in, in Israel, literally. I didn't want to say goodbye to my parents until Aaron, uh, Itzhak, who said, look, it was the one that I had to say goodbye. Of course, everybody in the community, and Itzhak was sad. I said, you have to you have to develop get your own happy life together. Maybe we see each other again. Didn't. And but did you say goodbye to your parents? He said, no, I will not. I said, how can you be a Jew and not honor your parents? I said, how can I honor my parents? There's only one parent in the world. You have to say goodbye. Honor them. My father didn't want to see me. My mother was crying and I left. I came to the kibbutz, uh, learned Hebrew, picked bananas. If you want to know anything about bananas, we can put an effort to that. Uh, then I was one year in the hospital to get my Israeli German license up to Israeli power. Then I was drafted immediately to the Israeli army because I waived the waiting period and served in the Israeli army in the, in, a, in, in the occupied territories. And I remember the first, one of the first days, I was a lieutenant, I mean, I was an inspiring lieutenant, a doctor. And my commanding officer was in Beit El the first month of the first Intifada in October 1988, Arab uprising, full battle gear. My commanding officer said, look, Hebre, this is your doctor, his name is, Vol change it, uh, Dr. B.W. And when there's a problem, you, he's taking care of it. If I get killed, he's a commanding officer. Well, that was nice. And I asked myself, if they find out that I'm a Nazi son in drag, they kick me out of here. I mean, they, they at best, at worst, they throw me in the Arab village, they kill me. So I decided to throw my past in this virtual closet, slammed the door shut, took the key, locked, locked the, the lock, and tried to throw away the key. That was a big mistake. Because I didn't want to talk ever about my past until my son, Tal, asked me a simple question. Father was my grandfather, and I told him the story. I had to tell him the story. I couldn't lie anymore. I couldn't conceal anymore. And my son said, that's a cool story. Can I tell my friends in school? I said, no. He lived here in Miami. We don't say that. But my luck that three or four weeks later, they had a family history day. I was not there, but I was told over and over again from teachers, even last year, what happened. My son, when everybody talked about the family history, going back to the house of David or Solomon, my son raised his right hand and proudly declared that my grandfather was a famous Nazi. Well, it doesn't fly well in a Jewish school. You have to go to the principal's office. And the principal was very upset, together with the rabbi who was quiet. So Dr. Wolschläger, you're a respected member of our community. Your son Tal told us that your father was a Nazi. What is wrong with him? Is he on drugs? No, he's not on drugs. I told him my life story. And the rabbi looked at me, he did what? Life story, come with me. He took, took me by hand and said, can you tell it other people? I said, I can't. Tell it now, here, in front of my class, your son's class. Here I spoke for the first time about my life. And uh, when I finished, I had this weight lifted off my shoulders and I asked myself, why didn't I go back? I need to go back and close this circle of life that I opened so many years ago. And I took my son in December of 2004 um, back to Germany. 
November, visited my parents in the only place I knew I could visit them in a cemetery. They were long dead. And um, I, it sounds incredibly, incredibly made up of the Hollywood movie story, but it's true. When you go to Bamberg, there's a the central Friedhof cemetery is divided into a Jewish and a Christian part, literally in one area, just divided by the by a wall. And my parents' graveyard is exactly two walls parallel, located two walls parallel uh, to the wall that separates the Jewish from the Christian cemetery. You could see on the other side from my parents, you still can from my parents' side, the Jewish gravestones mounting above the mountain, almost defiantly casting the shadow to the other side. Here was standing with my son and my parents, gravesiding, and said, I don't know what to tell you. I was choking up, I don't know what to tell you, but I stepped out of the shadow because I had to learn the truth. I had to take responsibility. But my parents never did. And look, even in death, they're in the shadow of history. And the reason that I'm telling the story is not to show myself as the hero. I'm not. I'm just followed the path that I had to go. But is making people aware what I sharing with people what I learned from my father. Because my father taught me something very important that words have consequences. If you don't challenge the words that come up a person's mouth, words of hatred, misogyny, Jew hatred, anti-Semitism. If you don't counter them, these words of hatred fall on the fertile ground, the mind of others, and sprout into deeds. And if these deeds left unchallenged, habits will form. If these habits prevail, characters will form, and these characters will, will determine social norms that make it okay to kill a Jew. It didn't happen out of the nothing, that from at Nihil suddenly the Jews were killed. It was systematically taking the individuality away, taking the human humanity away, and then demonizing them as animals. And then you had laws already in this March of 1933 that made it okay to kill a Jew because it's not a really human being. And Jews could convert themselves six times over. It was the racial theory that Adolf Hitler pursued, the sick racial theory that made it impossible, even with conversion, to, to run away from the, and jump out of the shadow. You were dead. And the reason that I'm talking more over and over again about my life and travel the world, and hopefully not as much as I did in the last 10 years, but still traveled Australia, New Zealand, in Latin America, and Europe, Canada, United States, because it's like a disappearing Holocaust victims. The victims of the Holocaust die, as well those for me who will eventually die sooner or later, um, who were the children of Nazis. And um, I should be proud, and my parents, my children should be proud of what I do, but I'm, I'm not, because the more I talk and the more I realize that we are slipping deeper and deeper in this, in this sewer of hatred. And hatred is now normal. Hatred of Jews is now something like uh, going to Kentucky Fried Chicken and order chicken. It's, it's okay. And when you hear the words, I'm not taking politics of politicians, non-politician people. We talk about the Jews. What do you mean, the Jews? It's, it's Moshe, it's Abraham, it's Itzhak, it's Ran, it's, it's Eli. We talking about the Jews? Why don't you individualize them? Why don't you want to learn about them? Why don't you allow us to explain to you that we are not animals? And we don't have hooks, noses. But in this country, it's happening. And it's not Arab terrorists. It's the mainstream of white, wasp, white Americans. And uh, it's getting worse. It's getting worse and worse. And just the, the second poison pill that we have is the internet. 
nothing in internet, but it's it's the one word spreads in milliseconds all over the world, yeah. all over the world, potentiating, augmenting the message. And the question is, what are we going to do? Are we sitting back and saying, oh boy, boy, look what they're doing again? No, that's not what I, I learned as an Israeli officer in, in, in a combat unit that life can be snipped out of way in, in a second. I see, saw people dying and I couldn't save anymore. But we need to, from, from passive to, to aggressive, and not in a violent way, but standing up as, as Jews and say, Khalas, in Arabic for enough, must be. In Hebrew for, we, we should not do that anymore. We need to stand together and fight this anti-Semitism. Because not everybody is anti-Semitic. The issue is that, you know, it's anti-Semitism is baked into, you know, Christianity and some would say even Islam. Um, it's something like, you know, being blamed for killing Jesus is something that's it's a blood libel that's almost impossible to shake off. Yeah, you can't shut it. Yeah, and um, you know, for for us to say to obviously we want to fight against it, but now you have as the generation of of uh, Holocaust survivors, they're they're dying out. Um, we're hearing a lot of Holocaust denial fading away, and 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 the Holocaust denial, like even with the fact that the Germans were they were such great record keepers, at least. That's, you know, that's the one, I don't want to call it a positive thing, but it's at least proving that that this actually this event actually happened. People will in 50 years and 100 years say, oh, these videos are fake. These, uh, oh, sure. So so it's really like, uh, it's terrifying, honestly. Well, um, I believe that peace cannot be achieved by putting a signature on the paper. Peace and understanding between people can only come when people willing to talk to each other. Yes. Um, I'm, of course, for my attitude, being called a left-winger, and I'm a left-winger. If left-winger means that I'm a firm supporter of trade unions, if a left-winger means that everybody should have insurance, and if a national insurance plan, if it means a left-winger to talk to Arabs and, and promote peace and understanding, well, I'm a left-winger. But I'm, I'm somebody who is, we are given however you think about what religion should mean for me. But God didn't tell us to do something. He told us, if you do something like that, I guide you towards, you have to make the final decision. And I, I learned it from Rabbi Lau, the senior Lau, the former chief rabbi of Israel, son is now the chief rabbi of Israel. I heard him speaking 10 years ago in Auschwitz. On a dreary, cold day, he was standing down there on the podium, and he said, I'm an Orthodox rabbi, but I understand that people have doubt in Judaism when you're standing in the dentist inferno where so many of our brothers and sisters perish. But God was here. He was sitting in the fence and he cried because his children didn't follow what he tried to teach them. God will not make it better. God shows a direction. You can go, and that is what decision that you make. You're free to make the decision. I don't make it for you. But if you make the wrong decision, I will sit in there and, and cry what you did, your brothers and sisters. And that only applies to Christians. It only applies only to Jews. It doesn't apply to Islam. Actually, the Islam, um, in my understanding, and I studied it intensely because I lived with Arabs for a prolonged period of time, is very simple. Muhammad was the last prophet. Jesus, Jesus was a prophet. And Moshe was a prophet, but the only prophet in, that, that you accept is Muhammad. 
but you can live with us. But it's Muhammad. They recognize Muhammad. So that's a little bit different to, to what we being heard, that, that uh, Islam hates Judaism. The majority of uh, Arabs that I know and that I engage with, they really don't give a hoot about uh, about uh, Islam, good or bad. They say, look, we we when you talk about God, we, we have to live together. There's no other choice. We may be imperfect, but we have to live together in some shape or form or the other. Because otherwise, we can't kill each other over again and over again and over again. And the miracle is happening now with the uh, Abraham Accords, this understanding that we need each other and enough of this fighting. And and I do, as we are descendants of crypto Jews from the city of uh, Mashhad, we understand this very well that, you know, as bad as it mm-hmm. was or for, for a very long time, the, the Sephardic experience in general, I mean, I don't want to even, it's not good to compare uh, atrocities and, and, but it was a different experience, obviously, in, in the last uh, two centuries. Um, but I will say this about, you know, my hope is that, you know, I see that today because of the internet, because of people like you, things can actually change. Where, like you said, we have to have these conversations. Just the channel. Exactly. It was the channel. And and slowly, slowly, you know, we live, it's strange because we live in a time where you're not allowed to say anything that offends anybody anymore, right? You can't offend, you know, the, the LGBTQ and, and, and racism. And, all, and that's great. Okay. Don't offend anybody. But for some reason, anti-Semitism is the one thing that is allowed. And it's, and it's anti-Semitism. Okay. There's a great book by the ADL, the Inter-Defamation League, which is a fantastic, it's a yellow, it's a yellow cover Take some time to read very dense about the anti-Semitism, one of the best books I ever read. Um, but it's not only that we know about it and they report about it, but to ask ourselves, why on earth are we called Jews with a certain aura of not real people, not really belonging? Because it doesn't sound hard when they say, oh, the Catholics, what do you mean Catholics? Or the, Medi- the Methodists, doesn't sound good. But for Jews, it's always sound good. There's no name attached. We are always there, but they're not real. You just say the Abraham Accords, nothing of the into politics is a fantastic step forward. But these those who have have devised the Abraham Accord should look what happened after also enthusiasm of that we are coming together, Palestinian state will emerge, Nirvana will open. Well, it all collapsed and two thousand five hundred Israelis were killed in a wave of suicide attacks in the second intifada. And we have finally had to separate ourselves. Not if you separate, we don't talk. I remember the times when I worked in Ichelof Hospital, when the cleaning crew came out from Gaza, lived there during the week, and then went back to Gaza in the weekend. I invited invited several of them to my to my son's bat milah, and they came with presents. They knew what it is, but they said nobody invites us for that. But why not? Because they're Arabs. Well, do you want to come in or you don't want to come in? And I need my presence too. <laughs> you have to have to urge to change. Unfortunately, very, very difficult. And peace will only will emerge if one person talks to another person and let him listen and listen what the person has to say. That's mean we resolve the, resolve the problem. I'm very concerned about anti-Semitism and I'm very concerned about how it affects the life of Jews here in the, in the world. And um, I think it will get worse because this constant barrage of ideology and propaganda by rap stars 
whose name I don't want to mention, uh, who were being received by getting the podium from the White House to other places. People, we should forget if we are Democrats or Republicans or whatever you want. We are people, human people, and we, are, and we have the strength to say America is a land of freedom. We not only defend freedom of expression and defend freedom, we defend those who want to enjoy freedom. And Jews need to be protected and will be part of our society. And if you raise your mouth and, and, and your voice that you hate Jews and glorify Adolf Hitler, well, then get the heck out of here or bear the consequences. We're we're and, not, you know, we're this isn't a political show. No, absolutely not. It's, we're it's, actually we're centrists, but I will say this because I know a lot of, you know, Republicans who will say, you know, Trump led the Abraham Accords and therefore we can't question him. What he did by having Kanye in, in, in Mar-a-Lago and, 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 and yeah, exactly. Just like yep. and, and with this and Nick Fuentes, we should say their names, honestly, because yep. people need people need to understand absolutely. that this was the most disgusting act that you can do at this time just sad. to secure votes. Yeah, to, it's, it's sad. It's sad. And it's like, oh, he didn't say anything at this. That's what he tweeted. Oh, he didn't. Or he, I don't know if he tweeted it or he said it. Uh, that They didn't say anything anti-Semitic. Oh, I don't know this Nick Fuentes guy. Give me a break. You know, we, we, we have this, you have, uh, have to understand what happened, how it happened, that a civilized nation was Germany, the height of the of technological, cultural development is center literally the spot the center like california california like center was actually a breeding ground for hatred there was nothing missing nothing was missing breeding ground there's a great book in the in the in the belly of the beasts plural uh in kind of a reality tv novel written by the daughter or in the name of the daughter of the last american ambassador ambassador dot and describing how Germany, this fantastic country, slipped more and more into the morass of hatred. Why? Because nobody wanted to raise his voice. Yeah. Nobody well, wanted you know, to raise in, in Judaism, I, I want to inject some Judaism to this as well. Absolutely. Uh, there, there is a midrash, a famous midrash, about the head of Esav uh, being chopped off and falling into Maratha Machtela to be buried with the Abbot. Why? Because his head was 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 at least you know his potential was great but his descendants obviously were amalek um or amalek spiritual descendants let's just call it the nazis were if you look at them in terms of etiquette and timeliness and you know like kissing their children goodnight and teaching them in a way morals those are the same people that were turning babies into soap meaning that their head was detached from their actions and that's the danger of of I'm like it's like this it's it's unexplainable you have how can someone like this who's so refined and so sophisticated be so twisted you know like it's it's like a even german you could see it in there it's known that like german pornography is insane compared to other it it, it trickles down to every aspect of like let me write that down is it <laughs> no but really it's it's i mean we're, we're all adults here we're gonna have this this is a real conversation i see a pg-13 flashing in the <laughs> it's it's really like it's it's mind-boggling how you can see people on the outside and they're they're so you know put together and no i put I, you're making a very important point um we when i was i gave in germany for first about five years ago for the first time ever a lecture in my hometown and some people do remember me. And it was organized by uh, by a group of, of German 
uh, Jews and non-Jews that I should speak sponsoring my church. And I spoke to, for example, to medic to students from the university in Bamberg, theology and arts. I spoke to a group of children in a, in a special school, in a middle school in, in, in the south of Bamberg. And I spoke to two groups coming from the, from the Hick, Hick towns, villages um, that living there. And I heard only positive responses. And one of the, one of the responses I never forget was a 14, 15 year old woman, a girl, sitting next to me and, and I told my story and, and asked me and I finished, so do you have any questions? And no one had a question until she raised her hand. I don't understand. So, Uh-oh, here we go. I don't understand why your story is so special. Because Jews are like us. There's no difference. Imagine a young girl internalizes because of the intense efforts being done to get together, understand each other, that Jews are normal. They're like us. When we separate us from other cultural groups and we isolate and insulate, this is the worst that can happen. Because we need to be present. And we need to be present and it can be difficult. But you have the courage to, in, of course, not in downtown Tehran waving the Israeli flag, but to be present and use the communication technologies that we have to understand how the other is doing, what he wants, what he I Per persistently pursue the, the peace between Jews and Arabs because there is no other way. There is no other way. There is no alternative. And there's no alternative that Jews live with other Jews. And that we se don't separate ourselves as Jews because yes. of politics. And then we separate ourselves. And somebody asked me, I think we had a big discussions in the beginning. Somebody asked me, what kind of Jew are you? Are you reform, liberal, orthodox, uh, name it all. Conservative, I said, I'm a Jew. And do you think when the Jews lined up in Auschwitz at the crematorium, that anybody asked them if they reform Orthodox or liberal? Nobody asked. We are Jews, and we have to choose to stand together and respect each other. I feel as comfortable as, as I can be in a Hasidic environment and pray, especially in a Hasidic environment and pray, as I feel comfortable in a, well, in a reform environment. Uh, because I, it is the expression of Judaism. You may not agree with it. I mean, I'm traditionalist in, in a sense of being a Jew, but you may not agree with it. But if we as Jews can understand each other, how can un people understand what we want? And what we want and we should do is to reach out and say, if you don't understand us, come by. Go Shabbos, like the Chabad can do. Okay. Come by and, and uh, or play with young people interacting. Projects that are say, I'm not naive. And there will be ups and downs. But we cannot give up. We cannot fall back and, 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 and slide in the darkness and say, well, we tried and didn't work. Uh, Rabbi Lau, and God was sitting, God is here, and you're sitting there and crying with his people at his own people. I mean, this, we need to replay re and rewind and re rebuild and bringing it that not only you come to Friday for Shabbos, free Shabbos dinner, but that you connect as Jews. And regardless of what direction you come from, connect. And that we need to work together to maintain something which is not in the whole history of mankind exactly happened. That for 3,000, 4,000 years, there's a group of people sand, sandbagging into the desert, don't wear slippery shoes, 
schnapping themselves for 40 years, as it's written, to, to the home, and they prevail. No guns, no horses, the Egyptian army behind them and in front of them, the Romans behind them and in front of them. No history prevailed. Prevailed. Prevailed the, the bloodbath of the, the uh, knights who were fighting in, in uh, to free uh, Jerusalem, the, the crusaders. We prevailed. Show me one people that prevailed. None. We prevailed. Yeah. And and you also mentioned, which was important before before we go, um, about you you don't like the word Holocaust, right? That's uh... the Holocaust is a euphemism. It was the mass murder, the inferno, the Shoah. It for Holocaust in translating Holocaust means burnt offering. There was no burnt offering. This was a massive death machine that marched through Europe killing everybody, specifically the Jews. This was not Holocaust, it was genocide in prime time. And um, it can happen again. What do you think what happened in Cambodia in 1972? The mass murder of the Khmer Rouge, they killed 1.2 million uh, Cambodians in an orgy of Stone Age uh, communism. What happened in 1994 in Rwanda, butchering people, alive in machete, cracking them to death, 800,000 within six months. There was black against black in Cambodia, was Asians against Asians. It has nothing to do with color we have. It's nothing to do with what religion we practice. We have the human beasts, the beasts in, in us, the human animal makes us, not, it's not a defense, but makes us to do things that animals, except chimpanzees, don't do. Mur murder, indiscriminate murder. I don't want to use this as an example that I that I should use, but in the lack of time and words, I'm a diver. And I like to dive with white sharks, not because I'm a crazy man, but in cages. And what I learned in, in, in Cape Town, my son went diving and I saw there were about 10, 15 footers. They weigh about three pounds. They can crash the cage in a heartbeat, but they float by and look at you. And have no interest in, in taking apart. They need to read their their body image language, but they are, even them, this incarnation of horror, are not interested to to kill you for nothing because they don't like your taste. The teenagers, yeah, the five footers and so on, they play and kill you. But it's us, just us, who have this uncontrollable desire to kill. Everybody should have a gun. Everybody is can be armed. Everybody can shoot everybody throughout the world. The violence is augmented with the possession of guns, and nobody asks the question: Why are we doing that? Why are we doing that? Um, it's very difficult to to understand this world where, where body counts being used to, to to describe how many children come back. Do you have maybe body bags too for them? We need to reprogram it. We need and the only way to reprogram is when you ask me what kind of Jew I am, is it's to be the best Jew you can to be. And right. maintain and practice it in all your affairs. And when you have Carlos uh, book to Shulchan Aruch, how you should behave in business, well, like obviously don't read the whole book, just sporadically, but the Shulchan Aruch, there are guidelines. Judaism has guidelines given by Hashem. Guidance that we can internalize or not. Hashem will not force us to do it. He will just give us the guidance. You go in this direction, that direction. I can only tell you what direction you should go. 
but you have to take the step. You have to take the step. And um, there's so much, it's such a richness in, in culture. And just when it, when the first time I, I saw a, a Talmud, I understand immediately. says, so these guys are smart. They have an original text, and around them they put text, and around that text, another text. It's a Babylonian, the Hushalayim Talmud. They discuss and, and formalize and frame it. It's an endless regeneration discussion and, and discovery and discussion. Oh, maybe this word shouldn't be there. Maybe this should be Tuscan. Debating, not just believing, debating. Yes. And exactly. the conversations, and conversations. Exactly. And our, and our our children need to learn to be proud of being Jews. Yes. And absolutely. and should not only thinking Jews about yeshiva bocha, and then you get a, then you get a lentil soup or, or chicken nuggets, but you you need to breathe the history. And when you're once in in a synagogue, in, in, in what well, I don't say real synagogue, in, in in any synagogue, and you're not touched by the reading of the Torah, then you have a problem. Because this this tells you something from thousands and thousands of years of tradition. What people were able to do that? Tell me the people who did that. Having documents that are 2,000 years old and still praying the same prayer. This is the uniqueness of Judaism. And uh, and you should be proud to be a Jew, and I'm proud to be a Jew. Because I'm, I feel that it's the only way that, that I can express myself in a, in a honest and real fashion. Amazing, and um, you know, I, I I wanted to even talk about something. I don't, I, you probably don't have time, but I wanted to yeah, ask. Go, go ahead. Yeah, because there's... breakfast time is in about <laughs> just take <laughs> <Well>, bagels. <laughs> well, what you just said, first of all, before I even get to my next point, I just wanted to say that as a we we do a podcast where we discuss religious topics. Um, mm -hmm. not, not to, uh, you know, sow some type of divide between groups. Oh, we think this way and you think that way, but more to have uncomfortable conversations where, you know, we, the Sephardic voice is sometimes, let's say, suppressed our history. And we want to break down walls. We want to have discussions with, with Karaites or Samaritans or, or reform or conservative and discuss topics that even in the religious world will, will break down those walls because, Obviously, you know, listen, Jews are very um, traumatized people. And there's a reason why the Hasidim are living a shtetl life today, yes, because right. they feel they feel like they can't trust the outside world. Yes. And I, I totally understand that. But we need to break. We need like right now in America, especially what's happening now. Jews are kind of oblivious to what's happening. Like this is this is serious. This is not a joke. This anti-Semitism is ex it's exactly what happened in in Germany. And by the way, it also happened. And you you mentioned this as well in the after the First World War that the Jews were the scapegoat in in Germany. Um, so I what I wanted to ask you was because this is a kind of a dark side of American history that a lot of people don't know about or don't want to talk about is after the war, um, America kind of was in a uh, battle to get the top scientists from Germany with, with mm -hmm. against Russia. And, and the Russians too. And the Russians, exactly, against Russia. And we happened to get certain people like uh, Warner von Braun, who was a high-ranking uh, Nazi, um, who be ended up becoming the head of NASA, who led eventually led the mission to get us to the moon. Now, there's some, obviously, there's, there's, there's a serious problem with that. Um, and it's something that we ignore. And a lot of these Nazis would, would uh, you know, the ones with the scars, which I want you to talk about, um, would 
use the excuse of, you know, we never had, we were just forced and it wasn't our, we were, we were just following orders and we were afraid for our lives. So I want from your unique perspective, what do you make of this dark, dark part of our American history where people don't even know about, as well as the, the Nazis who went to Argentina and basically built communities there and they're still around till this day and nobody's talking about it. Well, I own America and Americans a lot. And uh, the reason that I'm an American is really citizen, I'm not a German citizen anymore, I lost that. But the men that landed on the beaches of Normandy in June, 19, June, July, June 1944, fought and bled and died. They allowed me, to, liberating my country, allowed me to grow up as a free man. And I have a eternal gratitude, which the sacrifice of thousands and thousands of Americans that hopefully their families can understand. You liberated me and allowed me to be a free man. And uh, freedom is most important in whatever shape or form we, we need to have. We need to live in a free, free man and a free society. Now, here comes real politic, the real, the reality politics. Politics of reality. After the Second World War, it was clear to the Americans and to the Russians that the Cold War would follow, that these F1's allies will separate very quickly. And America was desperate to build up a st stable West Germany under the zones of the British, the French, and the Americans building a, a, stable, a stable zone and introduce uh, laws that are for freedom and to get technology out of it that we can use. The Russians, as well as the Americans, took the human capital, meaning researchers, rocket engineers, microbiology experts, blah, 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 took them all, took them and schlepped them to their home country. Now, Werner von Braun was a rocket uh, enthusiast from the very early age on and uh, was a kind of a non-conformer. People think, well, he was not a non-conformer. He was a colonel, in the, it was a colonel of the SS. More people died constructing and in, in, in building this missile of V2 and V1, which was a kind of a, a uh, unique missile that were never built. Um, they more people died in constructing and building these missiles than these missiles killed people. The missiles killed people in London and England. More people died in the construction. He overlooked, oversaw the death camp, the underground construction facilities. He knew exactly exactly what was going on. In America, I, I, I this anecdote was Mitchell was, Ed Mitchell was in Apollo 12 uh, on, the, on the moon and uh, he lived in, developed in a painting habit and I met him as a painter in, uh, in uh, Orlando, in was Vero Beach. And uh, I asked him about the, the Germans. Ah, oh, the Germans, they were, they, were, they were good. We worked together. Literally minimizing. Nobody took the until his death. How Bernard Brown died in 1977, unfortunately. Until his death, nobody talked about that. But he actually did. He was an SS officer, got off the hook, knew how many people died in the underground facilities with body V1 and V2, and used the products they built out of the blood and tears, with the blood and tears of the victims smeared on this build pursued this fantastic voyage to the earth, voyage to the to the moon and whatever. He, we cannot condemn it anymore, but we should not glorify him. That's for sure. I don't glorify him because he was not a resistance fighter. He was not a person who, whose family suffered because of the resistance against Adolf Hitler. 
he was a mixed lawyer. He was doing exactly what he was ordered to do or did what the party probably wants him to do. And the Russians are falling in the same category. They just, many of those experts that they schlepped to Russia didn't come back. But um, we need to talk about not of hatred, but we need to talk out of cleaning the, our gut because a republic, a democracy can deal with mistakes that it made. Germany did de de dealt with the mistakes that were made and they cannot undo it, but at least make up for those who were suffering, who suffered. The last trial that now took place, uh, the, the, one of the last, the last Nazi trials that I followed was John Demaniak, Ivan the Terrible, who was supposedly a, a, a lived, faked his immigration paper in the United States, and supposedly uh, was a guard in a concentration, two concentration camps, and was a brutal murderer. He was deported from the United States in 1985 to, to Israel, and a trial was called like the, like the Eichmann trial. He denied it that he was, he was sentenced to death and the Israel Supreme Court vacated the judgment because of procedural error. He came, he was deported to the America, the Americans deported him to Germany and he died in Germany during the trial. He never saw freedom again. God forbid, none of them should freedom again. And the last Auschwitz trial that unfortunately is fading away is a, a secretary of the commander, commander of Stutthof, a concentration camp in Poland, wrote, typed all the names, 10,000 names of victims that should be killed and those who were killed and reported them. If you are involved in mass murder, if you're a secretary or if you're standing in the gas chamber, you are guilty because he didn't notify. You violated human rights. And uh, what we should do is, is, first of all, we need to be proud about our state of Israel. I mean, regardless how we stand towards Israel, I've, I was willing to fight for Israel and it was in the, in the war, in the Gulf War, and I was stationed in Lebanon for a short period of time. I was willing to fight. I remember one of my, uh, he can be reserved to him, we did reserve to him. I was the commanding officer, he was a captain at that time. And we had times to kill was in August 1990 at the border of Jordan, Syria, and Israel. This rat hole, and we had a lot. Of, I mean, we didn't have Rambat Samba in the nighttime, and the Jordanians moved the terrorists over to our side, so they literally hurting them that we could kill them. Um, we talked, and he said, "Look, I heard that you come from Germany, and you converted. Are you crazy?" And then you came here to this country to serve, and then you came to this country and work under that condition. Are you nuts? And then you fight with us, willing to die. You're one of us. You're as crazy as we are. Mazel tov. Belong, belong, <laughs> belong to the Mashpoch. Um, it's a unique country. We should never allow it to be trashed. We should never allow it to be demeaned. We should never allow People can do that if you want, but say the truth. Like, oh, they killed one, one a journalist. Well, by, by the way, how many journalists are being killed in Syria? 500? You don't know where they are? And you, and you yeah, and somebody get killed as a journalist. It happens, and we need to go after them. But in tearing it apart and magnifying Israel as the eternal enemy is not. Yeah. Zion, because if, Zionism is like a kosher and way of being anti-Semitic. Anti yeah, absolutely. It's Zionism, I'm proud of Zionism. Zionism. I support my country, and it's my country. And uh, I hope that the politics of day-to-day -day will fade in the background and we talk about a real deal. Will we, how do we deal with this emerging, exploding anti-Semitism? 
in still being a proud to be a Jew. When the Chabadnik came, came to our base uh, in, in the holidays, specifically holiday season, and you were a lone soldier, I was a lone soldier, soldier. they came, they asked me, it was called to come to the gate. There was a group of Chabadniks from Far Chabad. They said, what, what, what do you need? I said, well, some underwear and some socks. And within an hour, they came and brought me a whole new supply of underwear and socks. But willing to assist, willing to help, because you're doing your job and they're doing their job. We should be proud about how the cohesiveness of our society, regardless of how nutty we are. But I'm proud to be to be among the nuts. I work actually about 80% of the day I speak Hebrew because I work with Israelis until my boss is an Israeli. Um, I sometimes have to speak over in English, but wait a second, because I speak. You once come into the mood, you don't you don't make a difference anymore. You just think and speak Hebrew. Um, it's the language that I learned, the country that I served, the country that, that I was willing to fight for. And Judaism is something that throughout history, you need to struggle. Israel struggle. You need to struggle in a positive sense. You need to participate in the change. You need to support. And not being carried away by day-to-day -day politics is Netanyahu better than this one. Halas, over. This is not the point. The point is do we can preserve our identity, promote the, the participation of young Jews in the community. Last, before I babble away, I had a student in my practice years ago I work as a teacher, and he looked at my office and saw these missiles at the door. What is that? His name was, I, he had a Jewish name, I don't want to say what his name was. So that's a missile. What is a missile? I explained him carefully what a missile is. And eventually, he was with me three, four weeks, and the holidays came, and he was interested to learn. I gave him some paper, sit together with him for half an hour, and we talked about maybe the, do you read Hebrew? Maybe. If you don't, maybe kind of translation of the Talmud, did a little session. Now, fast forward two years, three years later, comes a Hasid in my office. Said, I know this guy. Oh, this beard and streamer. Ah, oh, doctor, it's me. It, what, are you in drag? Are you going to pour him or what, what is going on? <laughs> and he laughed. Said, no, I, I converted to Judaism. I converted back to real Judaism. He was a reformed who never learned anything from his family. And you showed me the way. Wow. And I said, what? <laughs> I was the one. Excuse me, God. I didn't intend to do that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But each of us can put a little bit of Yiddishkeit in, in, in somebody one-on-one. -on -one. And to be, you don't have to be a perfect yeshiva bucha, but to appreciate what you have, the matana that you got, the present that you get, to have the privilege to understand ancient texts privilege to understand commentaries, the privilege to see that we're always learning and adapting. And that's my hope, that we'll continue evolving, adapting, and, and, and living, not only surviving. And that's the reason why I'm talking. I mean, part of it is my concern about anti-Semitism, which is, should be everybody's concern. On the other hand, my concern that Jews fade away because of fear, because it's not good. My son, I, my children, I, I give a very simple message. You know, 30 and 32 and 28. I gave you the Jewish education that almost bankrupted me. But, I, but if you, and I see that my son's last, first day of Hanukkah sent me a candle lighting. 
and his girlfriend, who happened to be not didn't happen to be Jewish, learns to, to about Judaism, said, you know, maybe I'll succeed in something. And my daughter, the same thing, and my other daughter, that something that maybe I should be proud of, instead of having material things about me, I created something that will perpetuate. Amazing, amazing. You're 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 a real inspiration and. I pray that you inspire people to open their open their eyes to what's happening. Also, stand up against anti-Semitism and fight for this country, America, which which was was and hopefully still is one of the we greatest did. nations, if not the greatest nation ever created. And uh, we all, you know, Bensi and I really appreciate your time. I know you went very overtime. It's late at night. Thank you. Uh, one one final word. I don't want to take from my side. I, I can't say that because even though it was very difficult. Um, three months, two months ago, I, I was fatally ill. I got a brain infection from, uh, from probably from from the viruses, one of the viruses. I got encephalitis, and I was hallucinating the hell out of it. And the doctors were concerned. I was in the university in the Jackson Memorial Hospital here. They were concerned um, because the survival rate is not good. And when I heard them talking, I was out. I just heard them talking, concerned survival rate. I was in La La Land. And then came this tremendous peace and I understood what's going on. And I mean, a peace that I never never experienced. Well, that's the that's when you feel like dying. Well, the peace was interrupted immediately with the nurse coming in. <laughs> Sandwich, breakfast. <laughs> and I'm saying that because I woke up and said, Bahu Hashem, I will get better. And uh, I ate like a horse, got immediately the exercise, walked two days later, and live. I still have some residual problems with my with my leg because it was like a polio like effect. But I made it every day. I wake up and say, Look, I'm not the smartest and I'm not the best looking, and I'm definitely not the one who knows everything what, what I should learn. But tell me something. Do you think I can make it? I will do, I will make it just for you, for you and me. And that I feel. So there is something in our environment, is this the deruach, as you better know than I am, that we don't want to see it, but we want to feel it, and we feel it. And there's so much to learn from Judaism. There's so much positive energy in Judaism. And we need to be the courage not only stand up and defend our, our beloved Israel, but to stand up and defend our beloved culture, religion, whatever you want to call it, and said, don't turn away. We can demystify that. Just yeah. do the right thing and learn from us. And and when you have one it can kindles and then one understands it like this 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 young man who is now uh having a Jewish family and and is probably more religious than I ever can be. If I contributed to that, Mazatov. I did I did something. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Keep spreading your message. We love this. And um, again, thank you so much for taking the time. We, 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 we are so inspired. And thank uh, you. God willing, um, only good things. Bezat Hashem. All right. Chag Sameach. Chag Many sufkanyot. Don't eat too many. It's too late for that. I ate too much. That ship has sailed. Yeah. <laughs> 
Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified podcast. We really appreciate all your support and your feedback. If you want to help us grow the podcast, keep spreading the word, share it with your friends, family, or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon, so you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like, which would really help us grow the show. Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com slash Judaism. Pretty easy to remember. Thank you again, and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys.